Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be exalted tonight as we're looking to it, that, uh, that our worship of you would continue now in the respect that we give to your word, that we would be looking to hear your voice, eager to see what you want to say to us. And so we just ask that you'd give us open hearts that are thoughtful, that are aware, that are weighing and discerning what's said to understand real truth, to understand what you want to do in our hearts and in our lives. So have your way with us, please. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So again, before you dive into the middle of a book on a Wednesday night, we've got to kind of back up and give ourselves some context. So this is the book of 2 Corinthians, which means there's already a book of 1 Corinthians that we've covered, uh, which is Paul writing a letter to the church at the city of Corinth and addressing the problems that the church is having and saying, you guys are a very carnal church. You need to grow up. You need to mature in understanding what it means to be a Christian. And that's really the, the overall focus of 1 Corinthians is here's what it looks like to grow up as a Christian. Here's what it looks like to quit being self-focused, to quit being so immature and to quit making the entire point of coming together in church about glorifying you because church is about glorifying Jesus Christ. And so the Corinthian church uh, basically takes heed to what Paul is saying between the letter that Paul writes that we know is 1 Corinthians, between another letter that we no longer, that is not, that we don't have, the Lord decided not to include it as part of the scriptures, uh, between Paul sending Titus to the church to really, uh, frankly, whip him into shape, the church is receiving what Paul has said. Now, 2 Corinthians is written about a year later because Titus has come back to Paul while Paul is in Ephesus. And he says, hey, look, the people received what you said in 1 Corinthians. They're growing. They're not using the spiritual gifts to draw attention to themselves. They're starting to mature, but they have some questions. And these aren't questions about how do we do church. These are questions about your character and about your integrity. Because false teachers are coming, claiming to be from the church in Jerusalem, and they're saying, well, you know, we don't know if Paul's actually an apostle. We don't know if Paul's really qualified to be a minister. We don't know if Paul is qualified to teach you guys. We don't know if Paul is qualified to have a position of authority in your lives. And so the church at Corinth, really, instead of coming to Paul's defense and saying, wait a second, Paul's the man who led us to the Lord. Paul's discipled us in the Word of God. Paul has taught us what we know about Christianity. The church at Corinth says, you know, there might be something to that. And so 2 Corinthians is Paul's response to their questioning of his ministry. And it's not, he's not really defending himself for his own reputation's sake. He's defending himself for the integrity and the health of the church. And we've talked about the last several weeks, right? That's, that's when you step up to defend yourself. Uh, but it's just, hey, Paul could roll with having his own reputation get bashed. It happened all over the world. Right? But when it's, no, now the church is at risk and people's growth is going to be hindered if they don't understand the difference between what I'm teaching and what false teachers are teaching, that's when Paul really steps up to say, okay, here's what we're talking about. Here's what I'm doing. And so 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense of apostleship. It's his defense of his right to be a minister of the gospel. But along the way, as he's defending these various points, it's also a great commentary on what ministry looks like. It's a great commentary on what does it look like to serve the Lord? And what does it look like to serve the Lord from the standpoint of wanting to influence other people, which should be every single one of us. So the book has immense application, and that's where we're going to find ourselves tonight. Um, chapter 8, which is where we're going to start, really, it picks up, first word is moreover. So he's continuing a thought, all right? Um, 
chapter 7, he's making the point that basically, hey, my last letters that I've written to you have been pretty harsh. And I didn't enjoy writing them, but I'm glad that they accomplished the, the need that was there, right? And it's that trade-off that any of us have experienced if we ever have to rebuke someone in the Lord and say, hey, you know what? I love you. The Lord loves you, but what you're doing is wrong. And it's that awkward balance of like, well, I don't want to say it, but I feel like I need to say it. And if they receive it, then I'm glad I said it, even though I was sorry in the moment that I said it. So he's carrying that idea in the, in the last verse of chapter seven. He says, therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you and everything. So he's saying, hey, you guys are receiving my instruction. You're growing. I'm explaining my apostleship. I'm commenting on ministry. I'm explaining what the Lord is doing. And I have confidence that you are understanding that and receiving that. And so with that, now we get to chapter eight. Chapters eight and nine go hand in hand. Uh, they're really the exact same thought. Uh, 10 and 11 go hand in hand too, but we're probably gonna split them up over two weeks, which is how the, the spacing's working out. <clears throat> But chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Paul specifically here is referencing the fact that the Macedonian churches, the churches in the region of Macedonia, had taken up a collection of money for the church that was in Jerusalem. And the church that was in Jerusalem at this point in time in history was in serious need of money because, for, for a couple reasons. Um, one, it had grown exponentially. And so the needs of the church had grown exponentially. But two, uh, in the culture in Jerusalem, if a Jewish person converted to Christianity, they could lose their job, they could lose all their property. It, would be conf it could be confiscated by their relatives. Um, your family could basically hold a funeral and pronounce you dead and then read out your will and your stuff gets distributed. And so the church is full of these people who are in pretty immense poverty. Uh, history would say there was a, dr a big drought going on at this time as well. So we've got a lot of people uh, with a lot of limited resources and a drought on top of that, which is making resources more expensive. So the church is in Macedonia are taking up an offering. And the church in Corinth had gotten on board with this a year ago. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes reference to it. They said, hey, yeah, we're going to be, uh, we want to help out with that too. And so Paul now was addressing, basically in his second letter, um, hey, you guys a year ago told me you were on board with helping send funds to the church in Jerusalem. And it's time for you to finish that obligation. And so chapters 8 and 9, truthfully, are all about giving and tithing and fun stuff like that. Scott Murphy's favorite passage in the Bible is chapters 8 and 9. Um, that's sarcastic. Uh, but we're going to be looking tonight at what does it look like as a church, as individuals who want to grow in maturity, which is what the church in, at Corinth is, how should we view giving? How should we view tithing? How should we view giving money to a church? And so we got to remember a couple things here. The context, this is important. Paul is going to, he's going to do a couple things. He's going to offer what seems like two contradictory things, but they're not. He's going to say, hey, I'm pressuring you guys, but hey, I'm not pressuring you guys. 
right? And then we'll see that as it plays out. He's going to say, look, you guys said you were going to do it. It's time to step up your game. But hey, this isn't a commandment. I'm just telling you what I think you ought to do. But hey, you know what? You do whatever the Lord shows you. So there's this back and forth that happens as we talk about giving. But specifically, if we're going to discuss giving in the context of a church, Paul is giving us an example here of, hey, the Macedonian church is doing this properly, and I would like you to follow in their example. So notice something. This is really critical. This is like verse 5. Not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. That's the critical verse that you have to understand if you're going to ask yourself the question, how should I view giving? How should I view what I do with my resources as a Christian? The Macedonian churches first gave themselves to the Lord. That's where all giving starts. It does not start as we first decide that we set a percentage of our gross or our net income, depending on which one we feel more comfortable with, and then from there, as long as we get that ticked off, we're good to live the rest of our lives. That's not how giving works. Giving is, I am growing in my awareness of what Christ has done for me, therefore I am devoting myself to the Lord. And as I devote myself to the Lord, I start to see everything in my life as a blessing from Him. I start to say, wow, maybe I could actually use the blessings he's given me to bless other people, right? That's where giving has to stem from. If giving is ever stemming from you're being manipulated or you're being pressured or you're being tricked, then it's not, it's not biblical giving. Giving in a biblical context is always connected to this idea they first gave themselves to the Lord. We first give ourselves to the Lord, say, God, whatever I've got is yours. Everything is God's. You have nothing apart from the grace of God. You have no talents. You have no resources. You have no funds. You have no abilities. You have nothing apart from God. And so the idea that, uh, that a church or a minister of the gospel can just pick a number and say, this is what you owe the Lord, is really ridiculous. Because you need to be growing in your awareness of exactly how much Christ has given us. So this is the basis for everything that we're going to say in chapters 8 and 9. We give ourselves to the Lord and then he says, you know, they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. It's a one-two process. And if step one is not in place, whatever happens after that is going to be misguided. So he goes on in verse eight. He says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. He says, hey, I'm not pressuring you, but I just want you to know that this other church is really stepping up their game. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire, so there may also be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may supply their, they, their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. So there's three paragraphs there, at least in the New King James Version. It's broken into three paragraphs. And there's a couple thoughts. He says, okay, I'm not speaking by commandment. I'm not laying down a law of here's what it looks like when a Christian's supposed to give. But I am going to remind you of this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul says, who's our example when we want to talk about giving? It's Christ. 
right? I mean, I mean, what we, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Christian is just a word that means little Christ. I want to be like Jesus, just on a smaller scale, right? I want to be as much like Jesus Christ as I possibly can. And Paul says, great. If you understand what Jesus Christ is, understand what is the definition of Christ, in a sense. It's to give away everything he had, to give away all the glory, all the fellowship that he had with God the Father, to reduce himself to the point where really the only thing he had to offer was absolute obedience to God the Father. That's what Jesus offered when he was here on earth. Jesus didn't offer incredible physical abilities. He didn't offer, you know, uh, crazy wealth. He offered obedience to the Father. He offered the example of someone who said, I am completely surrendered to whatever the Father wants to do. And as a result of that, power flowed out of his life. As a result of that, resurrection came, right? What is the example forgiving? It's Christ who said, you know what? I'm not holding on to anything. As God, I'm not holding on to anything. I'm letting it all go for the sake of ministering to other people, for the sake of seeing other people brought into fellowship with the Father. And so Paul is just saying, hey, look, I'm not laying down the law here, but I am going to remind you that if you're going to claim to be a Christian and your goal is to look like Christ, then that involves giving of yourselves and not holding on to the things that you think are important. Letting go and saying, hey, what does God the Father want to do? And then he says, if there's a willing mind, in verse 12, it's accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. He says, listen, you guys made this, you know, a year ago you told me you were going to send these funds. You haven't sent them. And if there's a willing mind, you know, you don't, don't, don't say, hey, we'll do it. You know, hey, we're going to give a certain percentage. And then I say, are you guys going to keep your word? And then you say, well, you know, we would, but I just bought a new car. And so I'm thinking maybe that's more of like a next month thing. It's accepted according to what you have. You know, sometimes we can say, well, I would give X amount if I made X amount, right? Boy, if I had this kind of job, I'd give this kind of wealth. Paul says, no, you know what, whatever you've got, you give out of that. You give out of what the Lord has given you. That's the way, the, that's the way, that, that's the way that giving works, right? When, when the feeding of the 5,000 happened, the disciples didn't say, hey, we've got five loaves and two fish, but you know, if we had... 50 loaves and 20 fish, we could really do something. They still needed a miracle, right? If they'd had 5,000 loaves and 5,000 fish, it would have been a stretch. They didn't have anything. And so it wasn't, hey, we need a little more and then we can still be incompetent. It was, hey, here's what we've got. You're going to have to decide what you want to do with it, Lord. But we're giving out of what we have. And then lastly, he's just, he says, you know, I'm not saying that others should be eased and you should be burdened. Some people, this is important, some people take the idea of the early church in Jerusalem and hold it up as sort of a biblical argument for socialism. And say, well, hey, in the early church, they sold everything they had, and they just put it in a common pot and said, hey, you know what? Let's all share. And that's really not, for a couple things, that's not a biblical argument for socialism. And it's just important to be aware of that as our world likes to push and try to say, well, no, Christianity supports this or whatever else. That's not socialism. Uh, first of all, if it is socialism, the church is now in desperate need of money, so it doesn't work. Uh, but second of all, Paul is just saying, look, this is an opportunity right now. You're a very wealthy church. Historically, we know the church at Corinth was a very wealthy church. He says, you've got stuff, and they don't. I'm asking you to share it with them. If you don't have stuff, and they do, I'm going to ask them to share it with you. This isn't, hey, you know, socialism is, generosity is when I say, I want to bless you. Socialism is when I say, you are going to bless you, and I'm going to help administer it. And that's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, here's the opportunity. 
Here's what I'm encouraging you guys to do. And I am going to, as a friend in Christ, as a mentor, as, as an apostle, I'm going to tell you, if you gave me your word that you're going to do it, you ought to see what you can do about it as a matter of integrity. Verse 16, he says, But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went, with you, went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself, and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent, because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Here, Paul's covering logistics. He says, okay, listen, I'm sending Titus. I am also sending the brother whose praise is the gospel throughout all the churches. We have no idea who this guy is. But he says, man, it's the guy that everybody knows. I'm saying Titus. And you know who, and we all say, no, who? And he says, there's another brother who they're sending. This is a basic accountability system to say, hey, you guys, they're going to come, they're going to receive the money, they're going to take it to Jerusalem. We need a system in place to make sure that the same amount of money that left is the same amount of money that shows up. And this is just, you know, sometimes it's a great time to stop and say, okay, how does money flow through a church? And this is important Paul, you know, again, he's defending his apostleship. There are questions about his integrity. There's questions about how money is handled. He's saying, okay, let's talk about this. I'm sending three separate individuals to come and handle this, and I'm not one of them, right? In our church here, the money is, we're very careful about how the money's counted and what's going on to make sure that there's never a situation where one person has access to the money by themselves. So there's a money bag that the money goes in. There's a key to the money bag. The key and the bag stay in two separate households. It takes two signatures to write a check in this church, right? Two separate people from two different families count the money because we want to make sure that there's a stewardship happening. Paul is taking seriously the role of authority that he's been given. And as a church, we want to always make sure we're taking very seriously the role. As a church, as individuals, when we look at giving, okay, we want to make sure we're giving in a way that it's going to an effective ministry, Right? It, and it's important that we know where our money's going. And, and honestly, we've kind of seen it in the last several years within different ministries. Things going down, right? Never give another dollar of your money to Gospel for Asia. It, it, was, it may have been a great mission at one point in time, but not anymore. It, if you give a dollar there, you have no idea where it's going. Frankly, um, I would strongly encourage give in a way where you have a connection, a personal connection to where the money's going right? To a missionary, there are, there are a lot of great, huge mission organizations out there, but if I don't know a single person who works there, it's just a little hard to touch base and say, hey, how's it going, right? If I want to give money to Ukraine, um, you know, we have specific missionaries who we support as a church who are in Ukraine working to spread the gospel. If you want to give money that's going to go to spread the gospel in Thailand or in Papua New Guinea, we have you know, we have specific people who we know, who we are in contact with, 
but we can say, okay, how are you doing? How can we pray for you? What's going on? And there's a, there's a greater sense of accountability. And so, again, remember, why do we give in the first place? We give because Christ is our example. But we give, verse 5, because we give ourselves first to the Lord and then as a response. So, it's not wrong to give out of a desire to, to bless someone, to have that emotional desire. But if you're at a Christian concert and a big organization stands up and says, hey, you know, for just $25 a month, you can support whatever, or you can, you know, keep this kid from falling into prostitution, or you can do whatever, and all it takes is just, you know, five lattes a month is all you have to sacrifice. If it's $25, it's more like a latte a month now. But, um, you know, just, just, you know, we'll hand you the packet, and you hand us the money, and it's all good. Trust us. We're, a, we're in a credit, you know, whatever. I'm not saying that all those ministries are corrupt. But I'm saying we have a responsibility. Paul's taking the responsibility of how his money handled very seriously. We have a responsibility as individuals to say, okay, where is the money that I am giving to the Lord going? Right? Because we want to see it done well. And incidentally, remember also, as Paul is making this request for money, this is not a request for money for Paul. Paul is adamant he does not take money from the Corinthian church. Now, we'll see elsewhere, Paul does receive money from other churches, but the Corinthian church specifically, he said, honestly, you guys are struggling with pride. I don't want anybody to have uh, an opportunity to say, well, you know, we really made Paul's ministry what it is. He says, I'm not taking money from you guys. I'm not. You are not writing my checks. You are not paying my salary. And I think that's just important to remember when we're looking at somebody asking for money as well, right? You understand, I can say this really comfortably up here. I can teach on this comfortably because if you get mad and don't give another dollar to this church, it doesn't impact me at all. I don't get paid to teach at this church, right? Nobody at this church gets paid. We're a volunteer church. And so if you give or don't give to this church, who cares? That's between you and the Lord. You give yourself first to the Lord. I'm not saying, hey, give yourself to the Lord and then to us because I need your money or want your money. I'm saying, hey, give yourself to the Lord and then give wherever the Lord directs you because I want to see you grow in your relationship with the Lord. I want to see you experience the blessing that comes when you get to, you know, give somebody money or give, it, give somebody money anonymously and bless somebody. And that thrill of, you know, you watch them from a distance get this blessing and you know what happened and the Lord knows what happened and nobody else does. That's a thrill in serving the Lord that we get to have. And so this isn't, you know, Paul isn't pressuring these people for the sake of, hey, you know what? I'm a little uh, short on new Ferraris right now. Or I need a third private jet to really spread the gospel. This is Paul saying, hey, you know what? The church in Jerusalem uh, is facing literal hunger. So what do you say we help them out? Right? There's a difference. Chapter 9, as we're moving on. He says, now concerning the ministering to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may not be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a matter of a grudging obligation. So Paul says, hey, listen, here's the deal. And again, this is one of those, you know, you read this chapter, and part of it, Paul's like, hey guys, just, you know, love Jesus Christ, grow in Christ, and just get whatever happens. And part of it, you're like, wow, Paul's being kind of intense here. Um, so Paul here is, is 
evidently more comfortable being intense than I am, at least in some ways. He says, look, um, look, I don't even need to write this to you guys, right? Because you know this and I know this. But hey, I told the Macedonian church a year ago that you guys had agreed to help out give funds. And it inspired them. It was a huge encouragement to them. And so that's really, they just started giving, you know, like in the first couple of verses of chapter eight, they abounded in the riches of their liberality. They gave, you know, they, these are poor churches here and you guys are a rich church and the poor churches were just pouring out blessings. So, hey, I'm sending Titus ahead of time in part so that if you guys are slacking and getting your money together, it'll be together by the time everybody else gets here or else that'd be really awkward for a lot of people, right? If you said, hey, we're gonna give a big gift and then all the poor people give a huge gift and we show up and you guys as the rich people haven't put it, you know, here's five bucks. He's like, it's gonna look kind of awkward. So I'm just encouraging you, don't make it look awkward. He goes on in verse six. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So a couple of really important points here, all right, before we wrap up this chapter and move into 10. He says, okay, this I say. He, and it's a, it's a really common verse. It's a great verse for manipulating people. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. How much would you like God to bless you? You know, it just depends. It's up to you. You give a dollar, God will bless you with a dollar's worth of joy. You give a thousand dollars. You got a thousand dollars of joy coming your way. That's how this verse sometimes gets interpreted. It's really not how this verse should be interpreted. Because what Paul does is he starts off with a physical metaphor, right? Sowing and reaping. We understand this in a wheel of a farming community, right? We understand you put one corn seed in, you do not get one corn seed out. You get an abundance. You put, you know, so, but the abundance of produce is directly proportionate to the number of seeds you place in. Now, but what he does though is he switches it. Because he doesn't say he who sows abound, uh, you know, abundantly will reap abundantly. He says he who sows bountifully. This is like a Greek word that's more like blessing. He who sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. He who sows blessings is going to reap blessings. Right? And frankly, this is one of those truths that is just a reality of our Christian experience. When we are giving ourselves first to the Lord and then seeking to see all of our resources in the light of, hey, it's just a gift from God, as we become more generous to the point of being even, you know, generous beyond what's practical, the Lord just makes things work. The Lord has a way of just saying, you know, I just want to pour out blessings on this person's life. And blessing, you know, we can, we always want to be careful. We can get this idea sometimes, like, if you do good things, good things happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you, right? If you're a good Christian and God likes you and he's happy with you, then good things will happen. That's not true right? The love of God 
is a, is a fixed state, right? It's eternal, it's perfect, it's full, it's been fully demonstrated through what Christ did for us on the cross. So it's not like doing one more thing is gonna add or take away from God's love for you. But we do live in a cause and effect universe. And so you can impact your ability to receive the gifts of God, right? You can directly impact your ability to be aware of what God is doing, to be a part of what God is doing. You can sow and you will reap. And that's not to say that if you sow good things, your life will be easy. Because frankly, growing is hard, right? I mean, it's a lot, you know, what, what happens when a seed begins to grow? It cracks the shell, the husk. If you want to grow, oh, there's blessings, but things are going to break. Things are going to crack. It's going to be dirty. It's going to be wet. It's going to be muddy. And growth will happen. Oh, there will be blessings. Don't get me wrong. But we're not saying, oh, hey, if you just give enough money, God will always make you happy. But if we're generous with, our, with what God has given to us, and this isn't exclusive to money. This is our time, our heart, our attitudes, all these things. If we're generous with those, we will find as a principle that the Lord tends to bless us in ways we really can't imagine. But then he says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. How much money are you supposed to give? What percentage of your income should you give to the Lord? Whatever the Lord tells you. And there's an idea sometimes in, you know, in church, uh, what's a tithe? Well, a tithe is 10%. Well, yes and no. The idea of tithing 10% is an Old Testament concept where the Lord said, 10% of what you have belongs to me. And so that's a great principle, but there's not, the idea of 10% is not repeated in the New Testament. So what do you, how much, what percentage of your money should you give? Well, as you purpose in your heart. Now, 10% is truthfully, a, it's a great place. It's kind of, it's a great place to start, you know, but, but how much are you supposed to give? There's not an answer. And this is one of the exciting and very frustrating parts of Christianity is the Lord wants us to experience relationship with him right? He doesn't give us these hard rules of, hey, you give 12.5% of your gross, not your net, or your net, not your gross, right? Of your pre-tax dollars. No, no, The Lord says, hey, you know what? Why don't you fellowship with me? Why don't you be in relationship with me? Why don't you experience closeness with me and then see where you go? And then see what percent is appropriate, right? That's the idea. And so, you know, some people may be called to give 10. Some people may be called to give two. Some people may be called to give 50. And you say, well, I sure hope I'm called to give two. Well, just fellowship with the Lord and see what he says, right? But, but how much should you give? You need to be fellowshipping with the Lord. You need to be in the word of God. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in relationship with Christ to answer that question. And if, and if the Lord is calling you to give a specific amount and you're just chucking 10% to make yourself feel better, well, that's lame, right? Whether that's more or less than you're supposed to be giving. If you're just trying to check it out of your mind so you can just get back to spending money on what you want, that's not how money, that's not how we're supposed to give. Why? Because not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't want you to give so that you stay out of hell, right? Well, I'm giving 10% because that's what I'm supposed to do. No, no. God wants you to give because you enjoy him, he wants you to give because you like being in his presence and you want to see the gifts that he's given you be used to bless other people so that they can experience the same thing. 
That's what we're called to give. That's why. And then he gives this benediction and this blessing to them. He says, now, may he who supplies, you know, the seed and the bread and all that, supply and multiply all that the Lord is doing in you. Paul just pronounces a blessing on the church. Hey, I hope God blesses you guys so abundantly, you don't know what to do with it. I hope God just pours out his blessing. And then he finishes the chapter, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What is that? That's the gift of the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Giving, if we're going to talk about giving as a church, giving as individuals, giving as two organizations, being aware of accountability and logistics and all those things, it starts and ends with what has Christ done. If you're starting or ending, and you know, if you're, as a Christian, you say, well, I, I know I'm supposed to give, okay? That's a reality. If you don't, if you're like, nope, I'm not giving any money to the Lord, the implication of that is that you don't really understand what the Lord has done for you, right? Giving is a discipline that we should walk in as mature Christians. Now, with that, give to whichever organization the Lord calls you to. Give whatever percent the Lord calls you to. But giving is supposed to happen, but it's supposed to happen, it's supposed to begin and end with what has God done? Where is God going? What does God want to do in my life? How can I express my thankfulness to the Lord for what he's done? Okay, that's where we go. And now we find ourselves in chapter 10. Technically, 10 and 11 go together, 12 and 13 go together. So you would think if we were gonna try and get through all the epistles in one year, and we're doing two to three chapters a week that we would just do 10 and 11 next week and 12 and 13 next week. But that's not true. Because um, as I'm looking at the calendar and figuring out where do we do, I do two chapters a week and three chapters a week and whatever else, whatever else, whatever else. Um, we basically, I'd like to do three chapters tonight. So, and besides that, the whole book is, is all, it's one thought, it has kind of chunks. So 10 and 11 are a chunk, but really, what are we reading? We're reading Paul's commentary on ministry and his defense of his apostleship. So chapters 10 and 11, we get into a little more of a personal defense. Not personal in the sense that Paul's offended, but personal in the sense that Paul's saying, okay, we kind of went through like the big ideas of ministry, right? We went through uh, sort of discipline in the church. We went through, you know, being aware of the resurrection. The mark of ministry is the call of the Holy Spirit on, my, on you know, someone's life, uh, how do I handle money? We're kind of covering these big things. Now we're going to cover, okay, me personally. We're moving out of generalizations. We're moving into specifics about Paul. And chapter 11 is going to be even more specific. We'll get there next week. Um, but he says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you, that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He's okay, guys, look. One of their complaints, one of the complaints of the false teachers was, you know, Paul's just like, Paul's two different people. He's a hypocrite. When he sends his letters, oh, he's all fire and thunder. When he gets here, he's all Mr. Nice Guy. How can you trust a guy like that? And Paul's like, would you really like me to be in person what I am in my letters? Like, if you want me to, I can. He says, I intend to be... Um, I intend to be bold against some. Paul's going to show up, and if these false teachers are still here, he's going to deal with them in person, and it won't be Mr. Nice Guy. But he says, look, are you serious? is that seriously your hang-up with me, that I'm nice in person? Um, and he says, I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul's saying, look, guys, one of the attacks against him is, is physical appearance. Uh, church history tells us that Paul was short, he had a funny nose, his voice squeaked, 
His eyes oozed pus. Uh, he probably wasn't like, you know, it uh, wasn't a magazine cover kind of a guy, right? He probably didn't have six-pack abs. I mean, just it wasn't, wasn't really there. Paul had scars everywhere from getting rocks thrown at his head, from getting hit with sticks and stones and canes and everything else. Probably had, you know, wear marks on his feet and his hands from chains. Paul had plenty of things going on, but physical attractiveness wasn't really one of them. He says, yeah, I am kind of chill in person. I don't have to, like, prove my awesomeness or my macho-ness. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He says, I'm not, I'm not, if your argument is what qualifies me to be an apostle, it's not my physical appearance. Paul's just, he's very free with that admission. Like, nope, if it's, uh, if it's a beauty contest, I'm out. But we walk according to the flesh. We're human. We have physical bodies, but we do not war according to the flesh. We are in a war. And sometimes as Christians, we wish it was a physical war. Right? Sometimes we think, well, you know, we just need a, we need a Christian version of the ACLU to really fight for our rights and, and stand up and, and, you know, show us, you know, stick it to the man and, and show him who's boss. And, and we don't take that from nobody and whatever else. And, you know... We live in a, in a democratic system of government, and I'm thankful for that. And we have rights and privileges that we need to exercise appropriately. But if that's your hope for salvation, uh, it's not going to get you there. Right? If your hope is the Republican Party uh, pulling us back from where we are right now, it's not going to happen. I like one commentator says, he says, don't get me wrong. The Republican Party is absolutely going to lead us to the gates of hell. I just think they might do it a little slower than the Democratic Party. That's, again, that's, you know, sometimes we have these hopes in political parties. No, 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 no. We're not fighting according to the flesh. We're fighting spiritual warfare. So what are we doing? We are fighting with spiritual weapons. These aren't carnal weapons. These are weapons that are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, for bringing every thought into captivity and being ready to punish all disobedience. So the weapons of our warfare... What? Fellowship with Christ, praise, prayer, worship, devotion, submission. Those weapons, the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, those can pull down strongholds. Those can cast down false arguments. Those can bring every thought into captivity. There's a lot of crazy thoughts running around in our world right now. Have you noticed? A lot of really weird thoughts that are running loose and they need to be made captive, right? There are thoughts about what a man can do to his body to pretend he's a woman or what a woman can do to her body to make herself convinced that she's a man. Those thoughts need to be captivated, right? We're, de we're destroying people as a society in the name of setting them free. We're making them prisoners. And, and, what is those, and so we're not going to win that by physical warfare. We're going to win that spiritually. Um, so He's just making this point. What qualifies me? What qualifies me? What qualifies any one of us? I mean, if we're kind of loud, we live in Madison, Indiana, right? We're not exactly like a suburb of political power here, right? We're not quite the movers and the shakers. 
we're just a quiet little church in a quiet little town in a relatively quiet little state, right? What are we doing? We're going to war, right? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're bringing it, right? And I said not because we're awesome, but because the Holy Spirit's awesome. He says, hey, you go to war, and there's power in it. Don't underestimate it. If we, you know, I mean, right now, how many, what are there, 50-ish people in this room? If we all vote for the same person, they will still finish last place in, like, any race, right? Like, our, our not to say we shouldn't vote, but I'm just saying, like, what are we? We're not really that much, but we got the power of God. And all of a sudden, things get different. Things change, right? Honestly, this, is, this, is, this has just been on my heart lately. This is a huge part of what worship is. This is a huge... Worship, honestly, is an act of rebellion. Worship is an act of defiance to say, you know what, there are lies being told to me and I refuse to believe them. There's an enemy who is pitching me these ideas that I know are false. And by worshiping the Lord, I'm going to declare the truths of who God is and of who I am and I'm going to defy the enemy. Right? If you got somebody, if you're wrestling with a bad attitude, I want to say this respectfully, but sometimes worship is like, that's where you take your bad attitude. You stick it to the man in worship. You, you tell the enemy of your soul, you've been lying to me all week long, and you need to shut up and listen to what I'm telling you right now, because I'm going to tell you the truth about who God is. And you can leave me alone. I'm focused on my relationship with the Lord. I don't need to listen to your lies right now. I'm here to fellowship with the Lord in the congregation of the believers, and you are not welcome here. And so sometimes that's what worship is. Worship, and not that we need to, we don't, don't have a conversation with a demonic force. That's stupid. Um, but that idea of, you know what? There's a world system that's telling me what I need to do. And when we come together as a church to worship, we're standing in defiance. When we come together as a church in prayer, we are standing in opposition. When we come together as a church to study the word of God together, we're going to war. And it's not because of our physical appearance. It's not because of our prowess or our strength. It's because there's power in the word of God. There's power in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's active when we gather together in the name of Christ. Right? So that's the defense that Paul's giving. He says, verse 7, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Paul's making just a great point. He says, look, are you seriously trying to judge me based on what I look? If you're convinced you're a Christian, back up, ask yourself what it means to be a Christian, and then answer honestly the fact that, oh yeah, Paul's a Christian too. This has nothing to do with what I look like. This has to do with what is God doing? Verse 8, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by your letters. He said, we've been given this authority for what? Your edification. Verse 10, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. We are, Paul says, no, no. What marks my letters is that the Holy Spirit is writing them. What marks my physical presence when I'm there with you is that the Holy Spirit is working. I'm the same man on the same call. I might say it nicely when I'm in person. That doesn't change who I am. In verse 12, 
as we're wrapping up here. He says, for we do not, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. The false teachers who are coming from Jerusalem are all about their qualifications, what makes them awesome, how they're cool, how they're qualified. Paul says, I wouldn't even dare try and compete against those guys. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast within, beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appoints us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. He's saying, look, these guys come, they're just comparing themselves to themselves and explaining how everything that I've done is wrong. He says, that's not really my goal. I'm not really interested in that because I'm not going to boast beyond measure. Paul's saying, look, I didn't come, I'm not boasting of things beyond measure, I'm not boasting in other men's labors. These guys from Jerusalem are coming and they're pointing out everything that Paul has done wrong. And Paul's like, you know what, if they want to point out what I did wrong, that's fine, but can I just, you know, again, he's kind of, he's defending himself for the integrity of the church. He says, can I just point out that I actually did something, right? There are people, always, 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 there are people who are happy to tell you what you're doing wrong. We're happy to tell you what a church is doing wrong or what a denomination is doing wrong or what a movement is doing wrong, right? There are plenty of people who could tell us how we started this church wrong if they really wanted to. Oftentimes, those people have never started a church. There are plenty of people who could tell me how I teach wrong, and frankly, they're probably right, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things I could still want to learn. But sometimes we can get in this position of armchair critics, of, you know, of course he's doing it wrong. Oh my gosh, has he not read this you know, book from the 1400s that just clearly explains there's only one way to preach, right? Does he not know that if it's not written out word for word, it is not gonna come with power? Or does he not know that if he, doesn't use, that if he uses any notes, it's, it's limiting the Holy Spirit of God? No, no, no. Go out and do the work, Paul's saying. Right, Paul's like, I don't have time to compare myself with these guys. I'm a little busy spreading the gospel and teaching the word. So if they want to say they're better, whatever, who cares? I, I don't really give a rip. My argument is that I'm too busy. I'm, I'm doing the work that God's called me. What's my qualification? I don't have any qualification other than the fact that the Holy Spirit has called me, the Holy Spirit has equipped me, and I'm doing what the Holy Spirit has called me to do. In verse 17, he says, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Paul's like, if I'm going to glory in one thing, it's this, that God wants to use me. It has nothing to do with my appearance. It has nothing to do with my abilities. This is not, it's not about who's commending themselves. If you think you're an awesome Christian, that does nothing, right? It just, it just doesn't. I don't care how awesome you are or how awesome you think you are. If you think you're awesome, A, you're probably not, and B, it has nothing to do with how awesome you actually are. Paul's like, I don't care. All I'm gonna glory in is that the Lord is doing something. Right? The one thing I know is that the Lord is real. And I want to grow in that. And again, as we kind of wrap it up, I know we kind of covered two separate chunks, if you will. But the idea still carries the same. How is ministry defined in the context of what's the Lord doing? How is giving just as a practical discipline of a mature Christian defined? It's only in what has Christ done? 
And, and 2 Corinthians as a whole, you know, just the book is all these little pieces together of Paul's his testimony and different things about here's what qualifies me, here's what ministry looks like. But the whole book is about Jesus Christ died and rose again in obedience to God the Father and the Holy Spirit is empowering us to walk victoriously here on earth as part of that. As part of that calling that we've been invited into and that fellowship that we're now allowed to participate in because we've been sanctified and cleaned up by what Christ did. That's what it's all about. Right? It's not about how much do you give or how qualified are you or what do you look like physically. It's about is Christ sufficient and has Christ done what he said he's going to do? Is he doing what he has said he will be doing? And if that's the case, let's walk in it. Let's give generously, not, not money exclusively. Let's give ourselves to the Lord. Right? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. If you want to glory in anything, glory in the Lord. Right? Who's awesome? Paul or the false teachers? What's the answer? Christ. Right? Let him who glories, glories in the Lord. Paul's like, I don't care. I don't know. All I know is Christ is pretty awesome, and I'd rather stay focused on that. So you know what we should do as a church, as individuals? Stay focused on Christ. Right? Lord, that is our prayer. That is our desire and our goal. We want to be people who are obsessed and fixated on the glory of Christ. We want to be devoted to what you're doing. God, we are so thankful that you, in obedience to the Father, came and died and rose again for us. And we can't even possibly understand the depth of what was involved in that, God. But we want to respond in thankfulness. We want to give ourselves to you and let you do whatever you want with all of us. God, we don't want to give 10% of our lives to you. We want to give 100%. Everything that we have is yours. So we ask you to take it Use it, make it increase and abound beyond what we can even imagine for the sake of deeper and greater fellowship with you, for the sake of increasing holiness and just a closer interaction with the glory of your presence. So we thank you for these things. God, we praise you and we just ask that you would go before us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.